pray together. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather. And God, I pray that you will give us soft hearts and steel spines when it comes to the truth of your word. God, help us to stand firmly on the truth, but also to make sure that we don't sacrifice grace and love for the sake of the truth. And Lord, we know that when we sacrifice grace or when we sacrifice truth, we lose both. And so, God, I pray that you would help uh, give us wisdom and courage during these days. God, help the truth uh, that's here permeate our own hearts. And God, help us see our own blind spots and help us be sure uh, that we are living according to the truth of your word, uh, by your grace, by your spirit, to the best we can. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to read to you for a moment from Genesis chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. Verse 27 in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. And you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Um, This is the basic thesis that I want us to deal with tonight, to think through tonight. We're going to walk through um, just a little bit of a talk this evening, and I'm going to open up for questions at the end. Um, I always say it's going to be a QA. and a um, but there's no guarantee that we'll have either. And so uh, the questions are up to you and the answers are up to me. We'll see how both go. And uh, uh, so let me just say that we will be walking through this sentence tonight, a paraphrase of Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created human beings in his image as male and female. Um, this is a truth that sometimes people find hard to swallow, but this is not something that we want to hide from or that we are embarrassed of as Christians. This is something that we want to celebrate. And ultimately, not because we are really passionate about how people are behaving or what people are doing. Um, in that sense, uh, there's no real desire we have in that way, except that we must be truth tellers. And we must tell people the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we cannot tell the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ without helping people see this truth. Um, that human beings are created in God's image as male and female. This is part of what Jesus believed. Therefore, it's what the church believes. Therefore, it's part of what we ought to preach and teach. And so it's important for us also to recognize that living according to these truths is a good thing for people and for human flourishing and for the flourishing of society. The idea that we can simply live and let live or live out our truth and everyone be equally happy and everything go perfectly well um, is a lie. It doesn't work that way, and we see that over and over bearing itself out in our culture. In this sentence, uh, God created human beings in his image as male and female. There are three primary truths, and so much 
of what it means uh, to have a Christian truth claim, so much of what it means to understand the world that God made is embedded in this sentence. But there are three primary truths embedded in this sentence that I think have profoundly shaped our society, have s- profoundly shaped our culture, have profoundly shaped our civilization, and even if they hadn't, they are realities that are reflected in the world God made. All that being said, at the same time, these three truths that we're going to look at tonight um, have profoundly shaped our society, not only in our remembrance of those three truths, that human beings are created, that human beings are created in God's image, that human beings are created as male and female. Not only is our society shaped by the fact that we remember those things and in the ways we remember those things, but also in the ways we've forgotten those things and in the ways we still hold to those three truths but don't really even realize where they come from and hold to um, um, uh, transformations of those truths in so many ways or abuses of those truths. We're going to talk about some of that tonight. But as we walk slowly through this sentence tonight, consider the implications of it, uh, then we're going to think through ways it applies to our cultural, current cultural moment. So that's what I'm trying to do tonight. And let me just mention a few notes before we get started, just at the beginning. Let me just remind you of a few things. There's no way for us to look at all these things exhaustively tonight. So if you leave uh, tonight a little dissatisfied or wishing uh, there had been more substance in this area or that area, just know we can't completely deal with every issue at hand all the time. So this is the beginning, not the end, of conversations we need to have. And really not even the beginning. It's a midway point because we've been having these conversations regularly in tons of different contexts as a church. These things come through in sermons. These things come through in training you. These things come out in Sunday school. Uh, These things come out in all different kinds of contexts. We are dealing with these truths regularly. Uh, We are committed, second of all, I I want you to remember this, We are committed to holistic discipleship. Um, That is, uh, we are not going to scream shrilly at every issue as a church, or at least I'm not going to as a pastor, and we're not going to tilt at every windmill that comes up. Just just because the news says something is important doesn't mean it's important. So that's not to say we're never going to deal with issues or, or look at issues, but we also want to be really careful not to look like we're sort of just chasing after every little issue that someone on a talking head on TV says is important. So we want to be really careful to, to not sell out to just talk about these issues nonstop. There are other things that matter in the world besides what they're shouting about on the news tonight. Um, but at the same time, we want to make sure it's clear that we believe that the Bible has good answers for this. So part of even the strategy of how we talk about these things reflects this reality. The third thing I want us all to remember is that if churches don't speak to these issues, and I mean all of them, um, then our children, our youth will find someone who will. They will find somebody who will talk about these issues. So this is one of the things that I think is so important as a pastor and as a church that we don't shrink back from the issues at hand and that we make it clear that God's uh, truth, God's word speaks comprehensively to the issues of the day and that we want to be, make sure that we are equipping not only our children and our youth and our students and our college students, but also our adults to think biblically about these things, okay? Now, notice I'm not trying to equip everyone to think a certain way or in a certain, uh, necessarily in a certain political way or whatever else. We may land in some areas politically and everything else at some point, but first and foremost, we want to think biblically about all of these things. We want the Bible to be shaping the way we think. So we want to make sure our politics are downstream from how we understand the Bible, not the other way around. And so I think it's important for the church to speak 
to these things. And the last thing I'll say, especially as we deal with hot button topics, uh, as we think through these things, I can't encourage you enough to consider these things prayerfully, uh, to pray to the Lord about these things, to ask him to give you a soft heart. There are plenty of voices that are speaking to these things in really harsh and I would even argue in unbiblical ways, even when they agree with us in some particulars. Uh, nonetheless, the tone and everything else that's being used is oftentimes um, contradictory to the, the words of the Bible and not helpful for the gospel in the long run. So I hope that as we come to these issues, we won't come to them in a shrill, unkind, unloving way, but we'll come prayerfully and thoughtfully to thinking through these things as we move along the way. So as we, we're going to work through this sentence tonight, God created human beings in His image as male and female. And the first thing I think we should look at is God created human beings. God created human beings. Um, this is probably not what you came here for, right? Uh, most of us are sort of like, well, right, we know God, God made us. But when was the last time you really paused and reflected on your contingency? You are dependent you are not an independent creature. One of the great myths of our culture is our independence, our just sort of ability to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. There's sort of the myth of the self-made person, self-made man or the self-made woman in our culture and in our society. But the reality is you are contingent. Uh, Kelly Capick, in his book, You're Only Human, talks about a couple of professors who, when they would deal with their undergraduate students in the first semester, they would give them an assignment to go take a shower. And they would say, when you go to the shower, look down and, and be reminded you have a belly button. And so I want to remind you tonight, you don't have to go take a shower. Um, some of you may want to, I don't know, you know, at some point. But I, I, do, I do encourage it, generally speaking. But consider the fact you have a belly button. This is a constant, everyday reminder of your contingency. Right? You did not emerge out of nowhere. Right? You were once dependent on your mother completely uh, to be alive. It's a reminder you come from a place. You come from people. You did not emerge on your own. This is one of the hardest pills to swallow. You are not your own. You are contingent. You are a dependent creature. And so one of the first things when we consider this fact that God created human beings, one of the first challenges we have is the thought and the reminder that we do not own ourselves. Uh, we do not primarily own ourselves. We have a hard time believing anything but that poem that's become so, so famous now, Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And yet, this truth, this truth that God created human beings... This truth reminds us, what the Bible tells us, the biblical witness reminds us that we are dependent creatures and we are totally indebted to the gratuitous, creative act of God. In other words, um, you guys know what I mean when I say gratuitous? You guys know what I mean by that? Um, I have to teach my kids about things sometimes. And one of the things I have to teach my children about is tipping now, they're not paying for supper at this point, but I try to explain to them. So sometimes I say, hey, can, can we go out to dinner? And I say, no, we cannot. And they'll say, well, I'll just pay for it. And I say, um, my rule is if you pay for one meal in a month, you have to pay for all the meals in a month. 
so do you have enough money to pay for the, the monthly bill? And they're like, no. And I was like, all right. They said, but I bet I could pay for that one supper. And I was like, how much do you think it was last time we went? And they'll say, and I'll say, okay, well, how much money do you have? And they'll say this amount. And then I'll say, well, do you have enough money to tip? What do you mean by that? Sometimes I'll, I'll bring them over and I'll say, hey, look, here's the check. We're going to give extra money as gratuity. This is extra money that we're giving someone to thank them for that. Now, we can have a lot of conversation about tipping culture and whether or not someone's livelihood ought to be dependent on gratuity in that way or not. But the reality is that we recognize this idea God didn't have to do what He did when He made us. It was gratuitous. It's a sheer act of grace. We are completely contingent upon God deciding to create us. And therefore, we do not own ourselves. God has a right to say who we are, what we do, and how we live. That is God's prerogative. And so part of what it means to be created is to recognize we do not own ourselves. It's the issue of ownership. But furthermore, when we consider our createdness, we have to consider our limitations. Our limitations. So often, when we think about what it means to be human, we only think about the fact that we're sinners. We think about our limitations almost exclusively in terms of sin. But God always created human beings to be finite. He never designed us to be Him. Only God is infinite. And so we do have limitations. Uh, Kelly Capick, in a book I've been reading, You're Only Human, deals with some of these things really magnificently. There was another book I read earlier this year by John Mark Comer called The uh, uh, the Relentless Elimination of Hurry, I think is the title of the book, that deals with some of these issues as well. One of the things we've been sort of uh, deceived into believing in the modern age is that we are without limits. That people feel like they can push themselves even beyond their limits. But the reality is, at some point, you must rest. At some point, you max out what your talents can do. At some point, you max out what you can acquire. But the technological age that we live in has made us feel godlike in countless ways. But the reality is our limitations never stop rearing their heads. So while we may see someone who seems to be on top of the world, perhaps their family is a wreck in the wake of their pursuit of these things. They're finite. They have limitations. Perhaps their health is a wreck. There are all kinds of things that we have to recognize. We have limitations. But the advent of this seeming unhitching from our limitations has made possible some of the Pandora's box of other issues that we're encountering. In other words, we can almost feel godlike just in the way our technology has developed and the things we can do with technology, even in the medical field, the way that we can almost feel invincible at times because of what's um, capable in terms of medicine. There are things today that would have been a death sentence 100 years ago that we take a pill for today. There are things that would have been a death sentence 50, 60, 70 years ago that are outpatient surgery today. And so we can get to the point where we start to feel like we are invincible, like we are God, like our limitations are endless. We have none, but we have to be reminded that we do have limits. But when we also consider that God created us, that we are created, we also have to remember that being created means that the world that God made and the people that He made come with fixed realities. Uh, They come with fixed realities. We don't own ourselves. We have limitations. And there are fixed realities. Uh, Our createdness ultimately points to the fact 
that there are fixed points around us that there are just things we can't do anything about. You guys may, uh, may not know this about me, but I am a negotiator at heart. I, I love to negotiate. I love to haggle. No, nothing's ever the final word in Matt Alexander land, right? I always feel like, well, I mean, I think we got a chance. Let's just see, right? Drives my wife crazy. And so I was like, let's just check and see if that's really the rules. You know what I mean? Let's just make sure. Matt, it says it really clearly here. Right, right, right. There's an exception to everything. So often I think that's how we feel. There's just an exception to everything. But we have to remember our intelligence has bounds. There are things we don't know. We have to remember this because we have to remember that just because someone's smart in one area doesn't mean they're smart in every area. Uh, just because someone's qualified in this area doesn't mean they can speak to every area. And, and on top of all that, just because we know something that someone else doesn't know doesn't mean we know everything they don't know. We have to be reminded that there are fixed realities. Our intelligence has bounds. Eventually, we must sleep. Our progress eventually stalls out or has unintended consequences. There are so many good things that come from our technology, but the reality is we have to live knowing that there are fixed realities around us. Certain things are certain ways, and there's really not much we can do about it. So can we make the quality of life for human beings better? Absolutely, and we should. I hope that there will be uh, children in this church who grow up and decide because of, of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ and because I want to make the world a better place, I want to go into medicine or I want to go into this area or that area to try to help the quality of life of people get better. I'm thankful for the technologies we have. I'm grateful for these things. But we have to realize not everything in the world we live in is malleable. There are fixed points. There are fixed realities. And so it's a good reminder it's good to remember you come from somewhere. You are not the mere product of your own hard work. You did not just emerge out of nowhere. You are not the master of your fate. You have a belly button. You came from somewhere. You came from people. And ultimately, God made you. And we have to recognize and own that God made us. Recognize that. So God created human beings. But obviously, human beings are not the only creature God created. The only thing God made, I've got two dogs that live at my house. Used to have some fish. They're now with the Lord. But um, uh, we have two dogs that, that, that live at our house. We, we finally decided it was inhumane to bring any more fish into the home. And, uh, but we do have two dogs. And, uh, you know, we love our dogs. You know, they have names. And maybe we're like even, we may even love them weirdly sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, like I don't know. Maybe some of you guys have pets and you just, you're doing something with your pet. And you're like, man. I'm glad this is not a video on the internet right now. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm treating this dog like a person, you, you know, right now. And so I want to remember that and recognize that God, God made all kinds of different creatures. Um, and then sometimes, though, you, you look at creatures and we hear things about creatures. We read studies about creatures and they're eerily like us. There's a video making the rounds a couple uh, years ago of an orangutan driving a golf cart. You know what I mean? And it was just too much like looking in a mirror for me, you know? And I was like, this is making me really uncomfortable. It's like the, uh, it's like the uh, Jerry Clower bit where he talks about the chimpanzee that hunts coons. I think uh, Marcel Ledbetter says, don't, don't let that thing get in here. It looks too much like folks to be getting in here. 
it can be uncomfortable for us even sometimes the way that creatures are like us. And yet, even when you see an orangutan driving a golf cart, or you see your dog doing something incredibly intelligent, or you see a chimpanzee that can coon hunt, um, you, you look at those things and recognize still there is something different. There's something different about human beings than there is about us. And we get really sad when we see a deer, a dog, dead on the side of the road, but the, the difference that it would make if it were a human being that we saw would be remarkable, would it not? If we saw a body on the side of the road. So we have to recognize not only did God create us, but that's not where the story ends. Second of all, God created human beings in His image. All people are created in the image of God. And then later, Paul goes on to tell us another important truth. Not only are all people created in the image of God, but Paul tells us in Acts chapter 17 that God made all people from one man. That is, all human beings are created in the image of God, and all human beings are part of the same family. Okay, We are all of the same bloodline. I have been really troubled as... Uh, our culture, as many of you have been, as our culture has moved further and further away from what we might call traditional values. Traditional understanding of the family, traditional understanding of gender roles, a traditional, quote, understanding of all these things. But I've also been really, really unnerved and troubled by some of the backlash and the sort of, quote, traditional values that some people want to go back to that are rooted in blood and soil and other things like that, that are not Christian but pagan in nature. We have to remember that we have to be really careful that we don't try to get people back to Eden, <laughs> that we try to get people to the gospel, that the gospel is capable of remaking the world. We want to point people ultimately to Jesus because the reality is if what we're trying to do is just make things traditional again, the closest, the, the best thing we can get, the best thing we can get uh, out of just being more traditional, you know, just going back morally, the best thing we could get is the eastern gate of Eden. <laughs> That's as close as we can get. That does not get people into God's kingdom. It's only through the gospel that that happens. And so as Christians, we want to be careful that we think these ways, that we think Christianly about these things. This truth, all people are created in the image of God, in the brotherhood of humanity, is a truth our culture retains in many ways, but also a, uh, uh, not only something we retain in many ways, but also one that we've untethered ourselves from. I think we have to remember the way that we uh, retain Christian truth and have rejected Christian truth simultaneously often. Uh, one singer-songwriter named Father John Misty, I've quoted him in a sermon before, he said this in an interview one time. He there's no question I think we would recognize him as someone who has rejected his faith, the faith he grew up with. He grew up in an evangelical Christian home. But even then, in an interview, he said this, For all intents and purposes, I am a Christian. In that, you cannot really get it out of your system, he says. It becomes your worldview. I had this realization that even if you become a fanatical anti-Christian, you're still living in the orbit of these principles. It's still a part of you. I think he really reflects in a lot of ways the way our culture as a whole is thinking. Christopher Watkin, uh, in a book called Biblical Critical Theory, is a really helpful understanding of how to apply the Bible to culture. Uh, he said it this way, We live at a peculiar moment in history when our culture's assumptions and values 
retain a deeply Christian imprint. But when the teachings of the Bible are largely unknown, misunderstood, or condemned. This makes for a strange and at times amusing situation in which society increasingly sets itself against Christianity, but does so by using distinctively Christian arguments and assumptions. In other words, we are sawing off the branch that we're sitting on in so many ways as a culture. And I don't think there's anything that makes this more clear than in the teaching of what it means for human beings to be created in God's image. There are, there are values that our society holds very dearly right now. Even those that we would understand to be most antithetical uh, to Christianity that were not feasible in the history of the world without the advent of Christianity. So we want to make sure as we think through these things that we recognize a loss or distortion of this reality perpetually creates problems. And missing this truth and ignoring this truth has also caused problems in the Christian church. So just notice uh, a few things that we can see when we lose the fact that human beings are created in God's image. When we lose sight of that reality. Here are just a few things, uh, that, that problems that are created in this situation. Here's the first. I think it's one of the most obvious. Uh, racism. R- racism. Um, we, we need to recognize as Christians, racial prejudice is a sin. Hating someone based on the color of their skin or the country they're from or their ethnicity or whatever else, having any sort of personal animus or animosity, mistreating them in any way, um, is a sin before God because all people are created in His image and we are all descended from one man. God, God made us all, so there's the first reason it's a sin. God made us all in His image. And then furthermore, uh, God uh, made it so that we're all descended from the same person. We are all of a singular race in that sense. And so as the Christian church... We have to make sure that we uh, reject racism in all its forms. And I've, I've noticed something among uh, Christians, especially conservative Christians. I've noticed the way anytime something about race these days comes up, we tend to roll our eyes. And I think some of it is because we're frustrated by the way the world talks about racism. Right? We look at it, we say, well, everything, they, they say everything's racism. So what do we say? Well, nothing's racism because the world can't be right. But we have to remember that so much of where the world got the idea that racism is wrong, they got it from Christianity, okay? The civil rights movement was a distinctively Christian movement. There's no way the civil rights movement happens apart from Christianity. You see similar things happening in Great Britain with the abolition of the slave trade. And on top of all that, you see similar things happening with the ending of apartheid in South Africa where Christianity ultimately undoes these things. Well, now in hindsight, we've tried to blame Christianity for the institutions themselves, whereas it was really Christianity that resulted in their undoing. Now, there's no question, people tried to use Christianity to hold up sinful racist institutions. But in those moments when they did, it was because they had lost sight of the fact that all human beings are created in the image of God. It wasn't good theology, it was bad theology that caused those problems. Now, we did have a unique situation in the United States where a lot of Uh, conservative Christians, especially in the South, people who held to the truthfulness of the Bible, were some of the most uh, vocal uh, opponents of abolition. But the same was not true in Britain. Um, In fact, evangelical Christians led uh, the end of the slave trade. So we want to make sure that we recognize that ultimately it's Christianity that introduced the idea of the brotherhood of all people um, to the world. So when Paul wrote to Philemon and and, and, and wrote to Philemon about his slave Onesimus being his equal, being a brother, being in these ways. And Paul saying he could even demand 
that he release him because of different reasons. That was something that was very unique on the world stage. The idea in the ancient world that a slave and a free man would have been equal in any sense of the word or that every person on earth would have been created in God's image or would have been equals would have been laughable uh, to people in the ancient world. I think we also see the way that a loss of this reality can produce things like a radical uh, nationalism and a radical xenophobia. Now, I hope it's real clear to you guys that I think it's okay to have countries, and I think it's okay uh, for countries to have standards for citizenship. I'm not a full open borders kind of guy. But I think we can all also see the way that people can become so preoccupied with themselves and their own countries and their own types of people that they become hateful toward those outside the camp. So we must be careful not to be fearful or hateful of the other. Uh, You also see the way that things like oppression begin to develop in these ways. Seeing people as cogs in the wheel of industry or disposable or usable is an affront to God. One, One of the most recurring themes in the Bible is God speaking out against the oppression of the poor, the mistreatment of the poor. Now, I recognize the way that many of us are sort of had it up to here with everything being called oppression. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of with you guys probably on a lot of those things. But at the same time, just because some people misunderstand what oppression really is doesn't mean it doesn't exist and doesn't mean that God doesn't care about it. In fact, caring about the oppressed is a distinctly Christian idea that's now become unhitched from the Bible, unfortunately, in our culture and society and is being tossed to and fro in lots of ways. But the original principle belongs to the Lord. Well, what else? What about something like abortion? If a human being is created in the image of God, um, then abortion is a heinous sin before the Lord. It's the taking of an innocent human life. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If fetuses were not human beings, if I didn't believe they were human beings created in the image of God, I would have no moral opposition to abortion any more than I would have opposition to someone having their appendix taken out. But, but... And this is a big but. A fetus is not another organ. Okay? A fetus and a placenta are two different things. Okay? Both of which are are, uh, organisms, so to speak, that develop uh, on the other end of the fertilization of an egg. And uh, an embryo and a placenta are created. and, And a placenta is discarded and a baby is raised and becomes a human being. There's an ontological difference between a fetus and a placenta. And there's an ontological difference between a fetus and any other organ. Why? Because a fetus is a human being created in the image of God. Technology is what has made abortion on demand feasible. It's really, in so many ways, downstream from the advent of uh, birth control pills. And so I'm not totally, completely opposed to, to birth control pills, but we do need to recognize the way that um, um, we do need to recognize the way that uh, um, that technology allowed sex and procreation to be divided for the first time in human history. Okay, first time in human history, it was a total revolution in the way sex ethics could be understood. And so then, the the fact that now you can have sex whenever you want without fear of getting pregnant or with a much less fear of getting pregnant creates a world in which abortion becomes a lot more uh, feasible. And then the technology where abortion is a lot more uh, readily available also allows it to be uh, more um, readily accepted. 
All that being said, it's also the fruit of the sexual revolution, the remaking of what sexual ethics have historically been understood to be. But we don't stop there. We also recognize that something like euthanasia, which is creeping into our consciousness as a culture in a lot of more ways, is also something that is made feasible when we lose sight of human beings being created in God's image, the sanctity of human life. In the early days of the pandemic, I was really horrified by some of the language I heard used about senior adults because we learned in the early days of the pandemic that they were the people who were most susceptible to uh, the coronavirus in those days especially and even in ongoing ways. And there were people who claimed to be conservatives and people who claimed to be Christians who would say things like, talk about senior adults like they were expendable. Like, like, well, society really needs to move on and uh, if we have to lose some folks along the way, we'll lose some folks. How is that logic different? How is that logic different than the same sort of logic that's used about abortion? Right? Well, I mean, maybe, maybe it is a baby, maybe it isn't, but the reality is these women need to get back to the workforce, they need to get on with their lives, they don't need to have a burden that they don't desire. I think we have to be really careful of these things. We have to be careful that viability or quality of life or whatever else does not become our standard of who is and is not deserving of life. What happens then, not only when we start seeing euthanasia and abortion start moving closer in, closer in, closer in on life. It will never stop there. The culture of death will never stop at the two poles. We'll always move further and further in. Once we start having criteria other than human beings who are created in God's image have intrinsic worth. They are, if we do not own ourselves... Right? We do not own one another. We are owned by God, and we have no right to say who has the right to live and die at any given moment, apart uh, from God's revealed word and will. Uh, I'll say this. One thing I think we need to remember as we consider what it means for human beings to be created in God's image, we cannot be afraid of a womb-to-tomb pro-life ethic. I, I, I have seen the way that some people seem to have tried to kind of take the focus off uh, the pro-life movement's focus on abortion specifically by referencing womb to tomb uh, pro-life ethics, but I think it's essential for us as Christians to recognize that we need to have uh, a, a commitment to the sanctity of human life from womb to tomb and, and across the spectrum. We have to make sure that's the case. So human beings are created. Human beings are created in His image, and human beings are created as male and female. And I think it's good to remember gender is God's good design. It's something God gave us as a gift. And we must recognize that what the Bible teaches and what reality shows us is that uh, men and women are different. We are created in complementary ways, ways that we reflect one another. Um, and, and if no other way, but in many ways, but maybe especially uh, biologically. And so God gave men and women the gift of marriage, and it's a special way in which we are able to relate to one another. And ultimately, uh, marriage is created to point to greater realities, to point to the gospel, as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. But also, uh, marriage is the sanctioned place where procreation is designed to happen, where children are designed to be born. And that reality tells us that sex is a gift for a man and woman exclusively in marriage. And so we cannot let go of what the Bible teaches us about what it means to be gendered, okay? what it means to be male and female, what it means to, to have two different sexes, so to speak. Um, and maybe, maybe, maybe we should be careful with using the word gender because of the way it's been co-opted. So maybe we should say 
God gave us two different sexes. He made us male and female, and that is a fixed reality. We do not own that reality. That's something God has given to us. But as we, as we miss this and as we lose this, this picture of God's good design and the complementarity in these things, all sorts of bad fruit grows off that tree. Let me mention just a few things. Uh, one is misogyny, the hatred of women. Uh, let, let me tell you guys something. Misogyny as a concept, the idea that we could um, see women as less than what they are, is a distinctly Christian idea. Th- th- this is something that would not have registered with ancient peoples. The, the idea to a Roman uh, before Christianity uh, transformed the world that a, a man and a woman were equal. Um, the idea, for example, that Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The fact that Paul's even giving women agency would have been laughable uh, to many Romans of his day. Tom Holland, who's not a believer, from, from what I understand, wrote a book called Dominion. It's about uh, it's a history of how Christianity remade the modern world. And I want you to hear what he had to say about uh, the, the view of women in the Roman Empire and how man, men behaved in the Roman Empire. In Rome, men no more hesitated to use slaves and prostitutes to relieve themselves of their sexual needs than they did to use the side of a road as a toilet. To the presumptions that underlay this, however, Paul brought a radically different perspective. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Paul, by proclaiming the body a temple of the Holy Spirit, was not merely casting as sacrilege attitudes towards sex that most men in Corinth or Rome took for granted. He also was giving to those who serviced them. The bar girls and the painted boys in brothels, the slaves used without compunction by their masters, a glimpse of salvation. In other words, the idea that all people are created equal and the way that Paul speaks to sex ethics is seen in these days as this horrible uh, way that's trying to control people and trying to impinge on their freedom. But to the original hearers who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would have been seen as a profound freedom. And there is still freedom in these truths. And so we have to be careful when we miss the distinctiveness of men and women and miss that both men and women are created in the image of God. Things like misogyny tend to creep up. And so I'll just say, I think one of the gravest sins and errors that can be committed is to take the Bible's teaching on what it means to be male and female and to use it to put women down or to mistreat women. Uh, Oh, goodness, God forbid uh, to abuse women uh, in, in any sort of way or to act like men are better than women. Uh, which is sort of like white supremacy. It's a self-defeating argument. You know what I mean? Have you ever met a white supremacist and been like, yeah, no, I think that guy's supreme. No, you haven't. You know what I mean? It is absolutely a self-defeating argument. And it's the same way I feel about misogynists. You know what I mean? And um, all right, I I won't rant tonight. I've promised myself and the Lord. Misogyny, though, is a fruit of misunderstanding these things. Second of all, uh, we also see the way that a radical, just hear me out carefully, a radical feminism loses sight of these things. Um, first wave feminism, uh, we have to recognize, and, and some forms of feminism even now, uh, are distinctively Christian ideals. The idea that a woman can vote or have equality with a man is absolutely a, a Christian ideal. There's no, no question about that. This is These are truths, these are... These are uh, things that we hold to in our society that are rooted in the Bible and the way that the scriptures have brought forth fruit. But modern radical feminism tends to seek to erase any difference between men and women 
in a way that ultimately sets up an erasure of the goals of first and even second wave feminism. And so the way that radical feminism is moving toward embracing anything and everything, a panoply of almost any idea, you can take, for example, the way that the transgender movement is starting to ride the coattails of these ideologies and then in, the, in so doing, running roughshod over women's rights in the process. I, re, I watched a gut-wrenching uh, a testimony from a, a, a collegiate swimmer, female swimmer, um, earlier this week uh, talking about the challenges of swimming against men, um, transitioned men. Um, we also see the way that m- losing sight of this uh, doesn't see homosexuality as it should, third of all. Um, it, sin ultimately rips the sex drive and our libidos out of its appropriate context and, and sort of lets it, lets it be, become an anything-goes sort of situation. And I think we have to recognize the way that homosexuality is uh, an affront to God's good design. Now, listen, I, I do want to stop and say a brief word that uh, we have to be really careful as Christians to show love and grace and empathy toward those who are same-sex attracted. Uh, the idea that everyone who is same-sex attracted choose, chose to be same-sex attracted is a myth, and, and a lazy myth <laughs> at, at that. Um, I think it was a myth that seemed to, in, in his, historically speaking, looking back, it's a myth that seemed to develop in a time when Christians just kind of didn't want to have to really deal with these issues. Um, but w- w- they're here, and, and we do have to deal with these issues. But at the same time, while we must show love and grace toward those who are same-sex attracted, uh, we also want to be sure that we continue to stand firmly on the truth of God's Word, that sex and all sexual activity is meant to be between one man and one woman in the confines of marriage. And we, we can't miss that reality. And, and, and let me just mention also that it's not only homosexuality here, but it's all sorts of other things. I mean, we can't deal with every issue here tonight, but you think about the no-fault divorce culture that we have in, in our society. Uh, you start to think about the uh, promiscuity and fornication that we have, heterosexual in, in this culture and society, and even in the church in so many ways. We, we have these issues, so we, we cannot simply point out uh, homosexuality without dealing with the log in our own eye. Uh, but the reality is that we have to stand firm on these things and recognize that this is not a reflection of God's good design, and it is a result of the fall, a result of sinfulness. And, and homosexual sex, in that sense, is sin. Um, let me also uh, mention briefly um, the rise of transgenderism. Um, Carl Truman, his book, Rise and Trout for the Modern Self, is a really helpful treatment of a lot of these issues, showing us how we got to the world we live in now. Um, if you, it's kind of the, the thicker, more uh, serious dealing with this. He, he does have a, a more truncated, almost abridged version of this called Strange New World. If you wanted to read into these things, Carl Truman, Strange New World or Rise and Trout for the Modern Self would be really helpful. But in it, he, he has a, a chapter when he's talking about LGBTQ issues, and it's called The Triumph of the T. That is the way that transgenderism seems to be the sort of supreme uh, good to our culture right now. Seems to trump everything. Trump feminism, trump almost anything. Uh, transgenderism can trump. Of, of all the things that intersect, of, of, of all the theories, it feels like uh, to be transgender is the one ring to rule them all uh, right now. But we must recognize the way that thought has evolved to the point that people can see how they feel as distinct from and even more important than what they are or what they were created to be. That is, the psychological self, how we perceive ourselves, has triumphed over the biological self. And we must be careful, though, not to overreact the other way. With all that we are biologically as determinative of who we are. Right? Because we recognize that as the, our mind is renewed by the, by, the, by the scriptures, as the Holy Spirit indwells us, part of what God is working to overcome is our biology. 
right? And so in the same sense, we don't want to overreact the other direction and say, well, you are determined by your biology and, and allow men to come to us and say things like, well, you know, I was just given a, an extra large sex drive. Uh, it's part of the evolutionary process that I've received. It's just how God made me and I can have sex with whoever I want. To be careful. We have to let these things be driven by the Bible and ultimately by the gospel. We must maintain, though, as Christians and tell the truth about the fact that we are holistic people, body and soul, made by God. But let me also say this. The way that Christians, the way that the people... It's, there are so many serious questions in the world. And these serious questions deserve serious answers. And I'm afraid that the voices that get the most traction and that are heard the most are people who are giving unserious answers to serious questions. People who are mistreating, being angry, and mean-spirited toward those who are struggling with great struggles. Uh, Brothers and sisters, when we hear of someone or understand someone to be experiencing something like gender dysphoria, we must treat them like Jesus would have treated them. We must love them. I don't say that we stop telling the truth. Jesus never stopped telling the truth. But we must have an approach to these things that is different than the way the world is treating these things. We cannot come to this as as mocking these things. I saw a presumably Christian website just this week uh, that was praising a male MMA fighter for offering to fight 10 transgender fighters. And, and one uh, woman who, who had transitioned and says she's a man at this point had said she would fight him alone. And they said, I hope it happens. Hoping that a man would beat up a woman. I don't care what kind of culture war we're in. It is not conservative and it's sure not Christian. Hoping to see these sort of things is not a good thing. Do, do we need to cut through the error of the age, the insanity of the age? Unquestionably so. Is that the way we're going to do it? Absolutely not. And I I cannot encourage you guys enough uh, to be sure that you're not abandoning the worldliness that's coming from the crazy things on the far left and try to fix it with this crazy unbiblical things that are coming from the far right. Uh, That will not lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ. It might get them back to the east gate of Eden, but it won't get them to heaven. And, And that's what we're ultimately about. Uh, again, we can't deal with every issue thoroughly. We can't deal with every issue right now in this particular context the way I would like to, as thoroughly as we would like to. But uh, these are the issues, and these are the issues we're dealing with. And the reality is that simple sentence, it's as simple as that, human beings are created. Human beings are created in God's image. Human beings are created in God's image as male and female. Male and female, He created them. And as we conclude tonight, I want to mention just a few things Um, just a few points of application uh, before we open up for questions. Here's the first. Um, How how do we respond? What do we do? The first is this. Christians must live faithfully in their finitude. That's a a quote from Kelly Capick in You're Only Human. He says four ways to do this. Christians need to embrace rhythms and seasons of life. Christians need to recognize their own vulnerability Christians need to express lament and cultivate gratitude. And Christians need to rest, need to honor sleep and Sabbath. So in other words, maybe one way that we can begin to fight back against the, the wave of craziness is to start living like we are created. 
to start being faithful in our affinity to recognize our limits in these ways. Second of all, Christians must be truth tellers. Christians must be truth tellers. And we cannot stop telling the truth about everything. We cannot stop telling the truth about everything. Sometimes somebody will come up to me and say something like, I wish you would deal with this issue more, but I know you're afraid to. Because you're afraid people will get mad. And you guys know me, I'm really afraid to ruffle everyone here's feathers. Uh, I've made a career out of not bothering you all. Uh, no, what, what I want to say is um, I've never once had someone come up angry at me or frustrated with me um, for talking about homosexuality or talking about whatever it is they're hollering about on the news tonight. But I have a lot, had a lot of people mad at me for not. And, and for focusing on a holistic approach to discipleship and not just screaming about every issue along the way. And so it's going to take courage for us to tell the truth across the board. And sometimes in our circles, it's going to be harder to say uncomfortable things about our tribe than it is for the people outside our tribe. Okay? So I, w- I want you to remember that. We cannot stop telling the truth. If we speak out biblically on race and we get called woke or whatever else, so be it. We stand on the Bible. If we speak out biblically on sexual sin and we get called prudes or homophobes or whatever else, so be it. We stand on the truth. If we speak out against the insanity of the transgender movement and we get called transphobes or hateful bigots, so be it. We must be truth tellers. And the day the church stops telling the truth is the day the church will lose her witness because God is truth. My friends, I cannot encourage you enough to remind you, you do not have to walk in lockstep with everything around, everyone around you. And you don't have to walk in lockstep with the people you vote for. And, and you do not have to walk in lockstep with the people uh, who vote for the same people you vote for. It's okay to speak truth. We must be truth tellers. Truth tellers around the Bible, no matter what. Third of all, we must commit to seeing our own blind spots. Uh, we must commit to be, seeing our own Blind spots. Um, I really think we have to be more attuned to our own hypocrisy than ever. This is something Jesus commanded us to do. Jesus talked about this over and over and over again. Um, We are more hypocritical than we think we are. When you have a blind spot, when you have a speck in your eye or a log in your eye even, you should not be surprised. Okay? All of us do. I've I've got some things I'm wrong about right now. I've got some blind spots. There's no question about that. Jesus is going to straighten me out in countless ways. Uh, when I get to heaven. Here's what Christopher Watkins says about this. What our culture needs is not a model of Christ made in its own image, but the real Christ who comes in grace and truth to confront, complete, and console every culture for its good and His glory. Christ should not fit comfortably in any culture. And if He nestles snugly into our own, then we have almost certainly lost sight of the biblical Christ. We should maintain what C.S. Lewis calls a scrupulous care to preserve the Christian message as something distinct from one's own ideas. It's hard to do. It's hard to do. It's easy to make Jesus the Lord of whatever we already think. But to let Jesus speak directly into what it is that we need to hear is difficult. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that just in a matter of a week, people went from crying Hosanna to crying crucify Him? Do we know if it's the same people? Of course we don't know that. The Bible doesn't say that. But the reality is we need to recognize 
that when Jesus is doing what we want him to do, we're really happy with him. When he fits neatly into our own culture, we're really happy with him. But when Jesus starts to speak or when a preacher starts to speak and tell us what Jesus says that makes us uncomfortable, we need to be ready to hear those words and hear those truths. Fourth of all, Christians cannot take any biblical truth for granted. We just can't. I think um, our churches got lax over the years in actually teaching the Bible. You know, we were, we were real good at giving tips on how to live and everything else. We took our theology for granted. And theology that gets taken for granted is a theology that gets ignored and eventually cast aside. That's the reality. But we put our truth up front. We cannot take any biblical truth for granted. This is why we preach and teach the Bible. We cannot afford to take any biblical truth for granted. This is why I preach through books of the Bible. Because I want to make it clear that we are preaching the whole Christ from the whole Bible all the time until Jesus comes back. That's the goal. Those of you who teach, who get opportunities to teach, remember this. Teach the truth from the whole Bible. Don't, don't teach disembodied ideas. Don't teach your opinions. Don't teach your thoughts. Show people from the Word where the truth is coming from. We cannot have a church culture that's disembodied from the text of Scripture because what that's essentially doing is encouraging our next generation to value their opinions as much as we value the Bible. But if we want a faith that's going to hold, a, a faith that's going to stick, it has to be rooted in the Scripture. Here's the last thing, uh, or the next last thing I want to say. Number five, Christians must be committed to radical love. Christians must be committed to radical love. Speaking the truth and living the truth is essential. But we cannot do the Lord's work without using the Lord's ways. You know, I'll say this till I'm blue in the face. I will not listen to someone say that we need to act more like the world to win the world. Right, but they're letting men in women's bathrooms. We, we better fight back. Because that's what Jesus told us to do, right? Once the going gets tough, why don't you do it your way? And let's see how that works out, guys. I can't wait to say. No, that's not what the Lord said. Right? The Lord said, love. This is what we do. We have to be committed to radical love. The Lord's truth and the Lord's ways cannot be divided. I am troubled by the fact that some of the people who are most committed to the Lord's ways seem least committed to the Lord's truth. And some of the people who seem most committed to the Lord's truth seem least committed to the Lord's ways. But we must unite those things. We must reintegrate those things. We must put great social movements and the preaching of the gospel together. We must put great movements of love and the preaching of the gospel together. We must put standing on the truth and loving radically and loving well together. We cannot abandon these things. We must put these things together. Biblical, gospel-centered Christianity is often a work of reunification and making whole. That's what we are committed to, and we must be committed to it as the Lord's church. Finally, uh, we must celebrate the truth. We must celebrate the truth. When I was in college, I started wearing bow ties, and my pastor at the time was talking to me about this bow tie, and he was like, now listen, if you're going to wear a bow tie, you can't flinch. You can't kind of slink out and be like, how do you guys feel about it? You know what I mean? Wondering. You can't flinch. If you're going to wear a bow tie, you got to come out and be like, say something about it. I dare you. I love this bow tie, and I don't care what you think. Listen, if we're going to believe these things, these things that people in the world hate, these things that are difficult to believe, we can't flinch. In fact, we have to celebrate it. 
We have to show people that we're not afraid of these things. We're not ashamed of these things. We take delight in the way God designed us to be. We delight in these truths. We want to apologize for them. We're going to celebrate them. And, and that's who we are, and that's how God made us. And we believe this is the best design for God's flourishing, for flourishing in the world. Let's celebrate these things. I think so often some of our own challenges these things are the way we act ashamed of God's truth. No, let's celebrate God's truth. Let's embrace God's truth. Let's live it recognizing God created human beings in His image as male and female. That's a good thing for His glory, for our flourishing, for our joy. It's something to be celebrated. Something to be celebrated. Okay. I want to offer a few moments here for questions. Does anyone have any questions? I'll tell you what. I've got one here that someone wrote down. So I'll start with that while you guys think up a question or two. And we've got plenty of time here. If you need to slip out, we won't count you as rude. We, we know uh, we don't expect you to be here all night. But um, let me just, I do want to give as much time to questions as possible because um, obviously I wasn't able to deal with every issue tonight. Uh, 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 let's say uh, someone who you're close to, a family member, uh, has chosen um, to, to openly live a gay lifestyle. How do you treat the family member with love to avoid uh, alienating the family member? Um, how do you treat the partner? How do you host them in your home? What about gifts for the partner's birthday and other family occasions? And how do you do all this without appearing to approve or promote a gay lifestyle? Well, if you're not dealing with this right now, you will be. That's just the reality. Maybe not with a family member necessarily, but with a friend, with someone. Um, and I, this is a question I get some form of regularly from people. What, what do we do? How do we handle this? Uh, we've been invited to the wedding. How do we, how do we handle this? Um, let me just begin with my principle. You know, I can't answer every single one of these things because it's not something I've directly experienced but let me just show you the principle I'm operating out of. And it's this. I draw the line, to, to me, the line where it goes from loving well to non, not loving, to seeking to tell the truth. For me, is at a word that the culture uses, that the homosexual community uses, and it's the word affirming, affirmation. I draw the line at what's understood to be affirming behavior. And I don't determine what affirming behavior is. I allow uh, the, the, the culture, the LGBTQ uh, culture community, to tell me what they understand to be affirming behavior. And I draw the line there. So, for example, um, if, if there was someone who was in my family or a friend or someone else who was in an uh, openly gay relationship, I would gladly welcome them to our home. Uh, I would gladly treat them uh, like a real couple. Okay, I'm not going to shun them. I'm going to welcome them to my home just to act weird. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I'll just say, like, if you can't, I would understand you might not welcome them to your home. But I would love them, treat them well. I would give the partner a, a, a birthday present. Um, I would not attend their wedding. I certainly wouldn't do their wedding. I wouldn't participate in wedding f uh, festivities, anything like that. But uh, I will say what I would draw the line at is, hey, if they invited me to do something that is understood to be affirming. So will you go march with us in, in the parade? Will, will you do this or that or that that is signaling that you approve of this lifestyle? Anything like that that would be clearly signaling that I approve this lifestyle, I, I wouldn't do. I had a seminary professor one time who talked about a couple who came up to him after church and they said, I, I need to confess something to you. Our, our daughter is in a relationship with a woman and they've adopted a child. 
and we go visit them on the weekends and we give gifts to the grandchild and we love them and, and treat them really well and love the grandchild and we feel so guilty for what we're doing. And he looked at him and said, you should not feel guilty. You're heroes. You're doing exactly the right thing and not cutting them off. And so I always say, whatever you can do short of affirming that demonstrates love, that demonstrates, um, that demonstrates that you don't want to cut them off, that you want to keep the relationship open, I think you should do. So if it was someone who had changed their uh, pronouns, um, what we would tell our children to do, for example, if they had a friend who changed their pronouns and their name, um, by and large, you know, a child, I would say, uh, has a, a lot harder time and a lot more difficulty with the maturity to kind of stand for the truth. And I, I don't want to like just force my children to always live by my convictions right now because they, they don't hold them in the same way, but we want to, you know, mark them well. So we, we would tell our children probably don't use the new pronouns, but do use the new name um, because it would just be really difficult for a child to deal with not calling the child by their new name. Um, but at the same time, I don't want my children to get the idea that pronouns are just something we can do something with. There are kids who change their name every year. It's a little easier to deal with, a little easier to think through. Something like pronouns is a lot more difficult. To me, once you start using the pronouns, that's something like affirming behavior. Here's the other thing I'll say about that is we've, we've got to, with each other, turn the grace up to 11 on these issues. Uh, we are in unprecedented territory that changes rapidly every few minutes. And so, uh, literally, you know, it changes so rapidly. So that you may have a friend or someone who does something you don't quite understand. Tr try to understand it before you get angry or before you accuse or anything like that. Uh, we've we've got to understand that we're all in this together trying to figure some of these things out. But that was a great question one I was really glad to answer. Is God anti-gay, that one? Yeah, so Sam Alberry is uh, um, a minister, who, uh, a single minister who is same-sex attracted, and he's got a great little book called Is God Anti-Gay um, that's really helpful along these lines. Um, let me just mention a couple others just as you're thinking through these things. There's uh, two other resources I might mention. One is a book called Gay Girl, Good God by Jackie Hill Perry. Uh, it's her testimony. Uh, really helpful book, I think. And another that's maybe the most helpful I've read on this is a book called Born Again This Way. Uh, by Rachel Gilson. Both of those women are same-sex attracted women who uh, were committed to a biblical sex ethic and uh, ultimately wound up marrying men but, but don't have an unhealthy understanding that um, 